podcast that records our episodes live from a former Vanderbilt estate, though which one will remain a mystery to our listeners, Amanda? We will leave it up to them to do the sleuthing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, figure it out. <laughs> a lot of properties, a lot of old railroads around, so you'll just have to kind of put together the clues we've sprinkled throughout all of our episodes. Got to go back and listen to them first. <laughs> nice. <laughs> have you ever been on a former Vanderbilt estate of any sort? No. I mean, they're, you Not know, that I know of. No I don't shortage. Know, <laughs> I think he's probably got a few houses sprinkled throughout the United States. I mean, when you've got more money than you know what to do with, you build houses. Mm-hmm. And, like, large dining room tables fit for a banquet. Yeah, because you're having banquets, like, all the time. Yeah, banquet lifestyle. That's for sure. We will be banqueting after this episode concludes. If you have no idea why I'm talking about the Vanderbilt Estates, that's because you found a book club podcast episode. Book clubs are our analysis and deep dive episodes. Today's episode will be on the second half of Joan Didion's essay collection called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. So this is a part two episode. If you think you found this place in error or you haven't listened to part one or haven't listened to our book recommendation for that book, well, hey, feel feel free to pause this and check it out later. We'll be waiting for you in the feed when you're ready. We will be spoiling at this point the entirety of that essay collection, um, though we'll primarily be analyzing essays from the second half of it, obviously. If you don't know who we are, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under that name or handle, and it's all one word, so it's at the Lightly Literary Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there for book updates and just a general sense of our schedule, what we're reading and what we've got going on. I think I've established we're going to spoil this whole thing if you even fear spoilers for essays, I suppose. Um, (laughs) For essay collections and short story collections, Amanda and I generally just pick the ones that we want to talk about the most, so for the sake of our timing and making sure we're keeping our podcast timing nice and tight, we will not be discussing every single essay. There were a lot more of them in the back half, even though the page count was down, um, mostly because some of her personal writings are pretty brief, so and reflective, but pretty brief in the end. Anything before we jump in, Amanda? Nah, I'm ready. Let's get to it. Let's discuss some of the second half of Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Uh, I suppose we'll just go in order here. I have notes from a native daughter queued up. So this is an essay in which she attempts to unpack her hometown, or at least her home region. Uh, she, Didion, wants to kind of delineate what it means to be from California, and she's very quick to say that that doesn't mean Los Angeles or San Francisco. Those are sort of <laughs> exempt from her definition. She is talking about the Sacramento Valley, or basically the gap between LA and San Francisco, which, uh, if you're not from the United States, is a pretty massive chunk of land. California is a large country that spans a lot more territory than people think. Anyway, that's where her family's from. She gives us a brief sense of its history, talks about the farmland, how people kind of went there to seek fortunes, and a bit of manifest destiny. I don't think she uses that term, but a bit of sort of wandering out to find your fortune in the West. Um, People, you know, come into money and then lose it, and there's history there. She also then interweaves tales from her own childhood. I think she has a fear of snakes, which I respect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't Didn't want to swim in the muddy rivers of the Sacramento Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all in all, she seems to find it a perplexing place to live and to describe, though. I don't know. She, Didion has a lot of clear ideas, but also I think m- much of her life can perplexes her. <laughs> so I don't know if she comes down with a, a specific idea about what this place is like. It's not quite a Garden of Eden, though 
the residents seem insular and protective in a way that that treat it like it is. Uh, it's also not entirely empty wasteland. Some people kind of think of those parts of California as sort of dead and not worth visiting and stuff. But also there's this little aside she gives at the end of a person who lives on a trailer kind of atop their family's previous acreage. Like they had a big fortune, huge mansion, and had a farming empire. And then, you know, all that's left is one descendant in a trailer. So I don't know. She's she's definitely conflicted. But uh, ultimately, though, she just spends the essay trying to understand whether or not she truly comprehends where she's from. And, you know, in turn, I guess, whether she understands herself very well. She's got some pretty illuminating descriptions of San Sacramento. I was going to say San Francisco. Slip of the tongue. Sacramento in this essay. I guess I chose it because it felt... Well, I don't know. I mean, most of the second half of this book is very personal, kind of by definition. I suppose this one just felt the most personal to me because it was about her childhood, and she was pretty open about her family time. Um, she also gets pretty lucid about the region. Again, I don't know if you walked out of it with a clear thesis, but here's some things she says about the, the Sacramento Valley. I said that Sacramento was the least typical of the valley towns, and it is, but not only, or sorry, but only because it is bigger and more diverse, only because it has the rivers and the legislator. Its true character remains in the valley character, its virtues, valley virtues, its sadness, the valley sadness. It is just as hot in the summertime, so hot that the air shimmers and the grass bleaches white and the blinds stay drawn all day. So hot that August comes on not like a month, but like an affliction. It is just as flat, so flat that a ranch of my family's, with a slight rise on it, perhaps a foot, was known for the hundred some years which preceded this year as the hill ranch um it is known this year as a subdivision in the making but that is another part of the story above all in spite of its infusions from outside sacramento retains the valley insularity and so you know she talks about a lot of and gives a lot of anecdotal examples about that insularity and the people who live there the attitudes did you come away thinking she had a kind of a thesis <sighs> Kind of. So that was um, what I was not 100% sure of. I, and I'm not sure that she really knows either. I think she comes away with a, a pretty good idea of like, of, of, of Sacramento, which is funny because you think, I think of Sacramento as like a large city, but the way that she describes it is very much like my childhood uh, growing up in a, I would go every summer to visit my family up in Maine in a really small town up in Maine. And it was like, I feel like I'm reading about my own summers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Growing up there. Um, but if you look on it, as far as like a, an actual thesis, like I think she's a bit conflicted about it because on page 172, um, uh, she says, in fact, that's what I want to tell you about what it is like to come from a place like Sacramento. If I could make you understand that, I could make you understand California and perhaps something else besides. For Sacramento is California, and California is a place in which a boom mentality and a sense of Chekhovian loss meet in uneasy suspension, in which the mind is troubled by some buried but ineradicable suspicion that things had better work here, because here, beneath that immense bleached sky, is where we run out of continent. So that fits with her descriptions of, I think, uh, the, the, the mentality of California and how it's kind of like, uh, or of where she lived, where there's like very much like an old guard now mm -hmm. and yeah. like the newer people are, are still considered like outsiders, but the idea of like 
permanence as well. But then the very last paragraph that she gives us, it says, um, perhaps it is presumptuous of me to assume that they will be missing something. Perhaps in retrospect, this has been a story not about Sacramento at all, but about the things we lose and the promises we break as we grow older. Perhaps I've been playing out unawares um, the Margaret in the poem, and then she reads um, the Margaret poem, which is about mourning yourself and mourning memories and stuff rather than um, something tangible. Uh, so in that respect, that kind of goes against what she had said was her original purpose, I suppose. And it's more of a reflection of, um, uh, of like her nostalgia for the past, mm-hmm. um, which fits also with the way that she's described Sacramento. So I'm not really sure. I think that both of those fit well with what she was doing with the essay, but I'm not sure in the end, like, you know, as far as a, an actual thesis, which one she would actually argue is more likely. Yeah, she definitely has the the California is the end. You know, some people go there and make a fortune and others fall off the end of the earth. <laughs> Those are the two yeah. seeming outcomes. Or I guess some people shrivel up in the forest or uh, the forest, the desert, and just kind of dry out, wither away. But she, yeah. yeah, she paints such a, I don't know, it's kind of a fair and honest. There's a little humor and heart to it. Like in the newspapers, she, I actually cut off at that paragraph, but she describes how both the newspapers in Sacramento are politically yeah. opposite, but in the end kind of say the same things and have the same attitudes and observe the same observations or whatever. They take up their their diligent, obvious positions. And I don't know, I found that kind of, I don't know, quaint or something comforting to it. So she, yeah, she definitely seeks to uh, try and understand how California can be a place of such huge failure, I guess, would be one way of thinking of it, which I don't know if that aligns with her own life or how she would summarize <laughs> her own life. But certainly I think at times she's trying to reconcile that with herself. Yeah. And the, and it ties in well with um, the previous parts of part one, um, which would be her actual like published works about like the, her different interviews and stuff like that. Um it ties in well because in, in part one, a lot of it is about like, um, the, the cultural shifts and the changes that are occurring, um, in California during the sixties and, and, and specific examples of like the mindset of that time. And if you take that information that we discussed in like episode one of this, and you take all that information and you, and you, kind of glom it together with this essay about uh, notes from a native daughter, you see that, that she, she's definitely noticing that change, that shift in mentality and in culture. And like we discussed with um, the slashing towards Bethlehem essay itself, it's like almost a, a sense of like ambiguity and like not, not having a clear place almost and and things Mm -hmm. are just shifting so quickly now and she's just losing perhaps she's like she's got those wonderful memories of her childhood in Sacramento that are just so so beautiful but now as an adult especially with what she does as for a living um she's seeing all these differences and she's just kind of feeling like she's losing uh 
and not just she, but a, a lot of the people um, who are originally from California are losing maybe a, a cultural identity, which is why she also brings up like her aunts and other neighbors who are like very much the old guard and not wanting to let yeah. the engineers, like she was talking about the, uh, the engineers in particular who don't even read those two newspapers that you mentioned, yeah, but like read right. a third one. And <laughs> but these outsiders that are taking over. Yeah. Yeah. They're not connected to the old agricultural <clears throat> money and right. I don't know, history. I mean, the only example of her childhood I can think of, I know there were a few, but is the snake example. So even then her reluctance, her, I don't know. She always has a kind of seemingly hesitant, depressed attitude toward herself or something and that even shows up in her childhood a bit too so that definitely comes through in the essay too suffuses it it de- it certainly is i don't know i mean you get a sense of any author that has incredibly vivid style really clearly realized style you always get a sense of who they are but it was interesting to see her talk about something more personal to her whereas in the first half yeah. she was you know doing reporting really um let's move to some morality do you want to start with essay two yeah, so I chose On Morality, um, and I chose this one because I felt like out of all the pieces, it was the most blatantly philosophical, I suppose, So, um, and I found that really interesting. Um, a very philosophical essay, Didion opens the scene in her hotel room in Death Valley as she tries to pin down what morality is, which is a big concept, but she says she prefers, quote, particulars. She then goes on to give some examples of morality, which she agrees is just basic humanity, like not leaving a body to be devoured by wildlife, a social code taught to us as children. She then goes on to explore morality versus conscience, one being more personal and therefore subjective than the other. Um, so it's it's just her thoughts on, on what it means to be moral and mm-hmm. why also, uh, in, in keeping with many of her essays' themes, like why morality um, can be a danger culturally, like by using morality right. and not v- clearly defining it. Um so or always using it it's like a cudgel just like a simple (laughs) blunt force blanket statement of something panic right which is exactly why she makes the distinction of like personal conscience Mm -hmm. versus morality actual morality yeah um and she wants to um in particular point out that like morality has nothing to do with like politics or or anything like that which she calls factitious moral burdens i just loved that <laughs> that uh-huh. phrase i was like oh, i love that it <laughs> I'm is gonna keep that in my mind <laughs> yeah it does always feel at its at its highest points that politics is going to burden you with something that's true <laughs> yeah it does it does feel that even if you have a strong ideological backbone at some point, everybody feels burdened by it, even the true believers. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, like, did you feel like, because this is almost like an argumentative essay in a way mm-hmm. where yeah. she's actually arguing her philosophies, did you feel like her argument actually made sense where morality is just being a decent human being? And, like, showing she kept using the word loyalty, loyalty to the human race um, versus mm-hmm. the idea of, like, the conscience and, and and morality is not related to that. 
Yeah, it's definitely complex. I don't know if her own. I mean, I'll have to. I'd have to reexamine some of the writing on it. But I remember not being super compelled by her own example, though I understood with the with the person not leaving the body in the desert to rot, like the the these this couple comes upon. Were they in an accident or something? I don't know. Yeah. But they come upon. So there's yeah, some dead person in the desert. There's no cell phones, obviously, in the '60s, so they had to drive hours to go get help and the husband stays with the corpse to make sure it's not alone i yeah her sort of it's a definition of morality that's incredibly simplistic and primitive on on purpose i I don't know if those would be her words but it's yeah the basic human relations of like well i can't go around killing everybody because then humanity would fail (laughs) so there's just a base instinct in people to kind of be cautious and thoughtful and non-murderous with other people there were otherwise social the word social doesn't exist (laughs) if you know, it's, I think there's a certain, I don't know, I guess my own definition of morality would be, uh, I think the moral life is a lot more complex than that. I would probably call that something like basic, like neuroscience or something. I don't know. It would be something else. I don't, I just feel like when, as soon as you start discussing moral issues, it becomes, you know, things that can get involved like ethics and basically things that can't be explained by biological drive or something. And so, or purely by that, I mean, to an extent, everything goes through the brain. So it's all biology in a way, but I, yeah, I just think moral decision-making is different than, you know, basic social connection. Cause you can see that in communities of animals, of other animals, and they don't seem to worry too much about, I mean, I, I know there's some observations that hold true about like the way elephants behave and other animals. They have some kind of complex social codes. But yeah, it just doesn't feel, I don't know. It, it didn't seem quite like her definition would align with mine, but it is one way to kind of, it almost feels like a write-off, you know, where it's like she wants to treat morality as this really simple thing and all the stuff we put onto it is used incorrectly. I liked a lot of her critiques, though, about how you can certainly if you turn everything into a moral issue, it becomes exhausting and useless and becomes too kind of blunt force. I I did like that in the end. I think it's weird. I kind of agreed with the ending of her argument, but maybe her own definition of morality was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I I think it was clear, but I'm not certain I would agree with it. Cause like deciding to leave a body in the desert or stay that to me, that is deeply moral and goes way beyond basic social contract of like keeping a species like, that that's like a a much more complex idea about to me anyway about like honor and I, I don't know like you can certainly treat people respectfully and maintain a social community and not do something that and go out of your way that much you know like I don't it that feels different to me I, that's why I heard that main example didn't really hit with me I thought that was something a little bit different but I understood that you know her argument I think was like pretty well well realized. Yeah, I don't know whether I agree or disagree. I, I but uh, I thought that her argument was fairly well made, and what I liked about it too was that she did use um, examples, as she said. You know, she prefers having particulars, especially when it comes to something as complex as like the idea of morality. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have examples, and and not in the way that like a lot of the time when you read philosophy, the examples that are included are are also like big idea examples and stuff like that and not something that others can necessarily relate to. So it was it was like reading philosophy light and I, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. She yeah, she certainly I don't know, relishes 
moments relishes examples and knows how to invest us in them, involve them in them. The mm-hmm. one quote I pulled from this to discuss was the example from the divers who are trying to find a, I forgot what it is, a body of some kind, like there's some kind of accidental death or something in a, yeah, like I don't know a if miner's it, yeah, body, like a I quarry think. or something. Yeah, it was just, there, there's some, there's been some death and they're trying to find the corpse again. She does seem to fixate on these examples of honoring the dead or sort of acknowledging like helping the dead. Anyway, here's a couple of sentences from this description. The divers have been diving for 10 days but have found no bottom to the caves, no bodies and no trace of them, only black 90 degree water going down and down and down, and a single translucent fish, not classified. The story tonight is that one of the divers has been hauled up incoherent out of his head, shouting, until they got him out of there so that the widow could not hear, about water that got hotter instead of cooler as he went down, about light flickering through the water, about magma, about underground nuclear testing. And then she says that that is the tone of story that stories take out here, and there are quite a few of them tonight. So it's there's almost like a nihilism. I think in the imagery there kind of is a maddening. There's a power of nature. There's a oppositeness that's unnatural. There's a what's the whatever that Macbeth quote is. Good is bad. <laughs> bad is good. I don't <laughs> certainly not that, but that's the that's the point of it anyway. Um, but I think that yeah, with this. This dark black water, this unknowable depth, this evil, this lurking something, madness to it all. I think she's just very wary of the kind of human psychological state there. And mm-hmm. I, again, how that ties into morality, I think in her own definition, that example kind of sort of works. But again, I look at the legal system that that's bound up in, the the allocation of resources, the the same example, this ritualistic, like, have to honor the dead, have to find them, have to do do right by that moment or something. I don't know. To me, it's complex. I don't I don't think her writing quite, quite unpacks it, but it also creates a lot of intrigue, and she, I think she's just at her best almost. I mean, I found that paragraph pretty disturbing and intriguing, but I think yeah. she's almost at her best when she doesn't want to hit us with a thesis. You know, she just isn't going to be a... Um, pedantic writer really mm-hmm. so i have a lot to recommend about it i thought it was very interesting i i def- I, I don't know i came away from that essay maybe not knowing her more but definitely having a better sense of her kind of tone or some uh, slant maybe yeah yeah for sure yeah if not her beliefs any other thoughts on that one um the only other thing was that um on page 160 she's uh she included a description of her husband so in that same like room that she opened the scene with which she Mm -hmm. i mean she's so great at describing the setting and stuff like that but um she and her husband are in their um hotel room together and it says here uh blah 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 Where did I not? Oh, looking at the wrong thing. That is the tone um, stories take here. Every now and then I imagine I hear a rattlesnake, but my husband says that it is a faucet, a paper rustling in the wind. Then he stands by a window and plays a flashlight over the dry wash outside. Um, what does it mean? It means nothing manageable. There's some uh, sinister hysteria in the air out here tonight. Some hint of the monstrous perversion to which any human idea can come. So I just 
found that interesting that like she's why why is that particular image included in this essay at all about morality where she imagines that she hears a rattlesnake her husband says it's probably something that's not but he like stands up and is like actively like checking for rattlesnakes outside the window mm-hmm. um is that another example of like morality as it fits in her code or like what i, I just wasn't 100 percent sure why that particular scene was included i guess yeah i guess i read it as sort of these two responses to lurking problems lurking evils you know rattlesnakes imagined are real and just her she just has this sort of really low hum of kind of a depressive anxious mood about her which is it's odd it never really overwhelms her writing but it never goes away and it's kind of part and parcel with how she tries to understand the world we'll get to and the New York essay in a second talk about that more probably but and so and then you know her husband just has a much more bland if not pragmatic approach to just investigating it seeing what's out there and then and then not giving it more kind of stress or attention than it deserves in his mind. So I don't know. It's different responses to those kinds of lurking things. It's funny, though, because I, I do believe, I, yeah, as much as there is to interpret in those examples, I think her conclusion at the end in regards to kind of political discourse and the way people want to communicate about problems um, essentially, it's a watering down effect where it's if everything is a moral panic is morality really so omnipresent, you know, does every interaction in her, I guess, in her kind of example vocab, like does every political interaction have to be a moral thing? Like it, I think to her, it's just getting so bogged down and it's changing the kind of atmosphere of things, I suppose, how Mm -hmm. she sees the world. Yeah. I guess that's how I sort of read it. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a good interpretation. And we hope that those divers, did not go insane with radiation poisoning or something. I don't know what, <laughs> yeah, <something laughs> or whatever crazy, whatever's going whatever on. Whatever lurking horrors are down there. Um, let's move to another essay. I think we each pulled two, so I'll do I'll do my yeah. second one here. Uh, it's the final essay in the collection, though. There's no point in going in order here, as these are not they're themed, but they're not really uh, chronological at all. It is called Goodbye to All That, which a fitting enough final essay. This is another personal essay about location, so she's trying to reconcile. The person she was in her early 20s living in New York City, making the big city move. She went in on a bus, naive and aspirational, almost, you know, movie cliched out, (laughs) riding in with not a lot of prospects, not a lot of connections, but just going to figure it out in the big city, literally goes in on a bus, you know, steps off the bus and into, I think it was Queens or something anyway. And yeah, she spends the essay trying to understand that younger person and reconcile with who she is now. She catalogs the sort of down and out living conditions that she had. She was trying to make it as a writer and and briefly discusses some of her professional stuff. I I wouldn't say it's about her job, (laughs) but it's in there a couple times. Um, Her state of mind was driven by what she describes as sort of like a pure love of what New York City represented to her. And I think what it represents to many Americans, though these days, I don't know. I mean, it's, of course, the biggest city we have and the most important by many definitions. But I feel like the U.S. is just kind of diversified or something. I don't know. Other places have gotten their due, I guess. Anyway, but at the time, in the 60s or 50s when she moved there... um, it had this such overwhelming cultural power. It had such an allure to it. So she kind of falls for that. Um, 
there's an attempt to understand that influence and understand its importance to the rest of the country, kind of its social, cultural impact I mentioned. Uh, again, I don't think she walks away with a thesis about that, but that's okay. She instead gives us, you know, a lot of amusing and under, easy to understand in an emotional sense <laughs> stories about herself and trying to fit in, trying to be, you know, an interesting person. And I think her writing, again, is up to the task. I, I, I don't think she's trying to deliver clear sermons and academic style things, which is probably all for the best. Um, yeah, but anyway, that's that's her time in NYC. Did you think she left it feeling uh, fulfilled? <laughs> I th- I think she got what she needed to get out of it, but like Mm -hmm. she stayed too long, I think was her point. (laughs) Right. She says she stayed Mm -hmm. for eight years. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, she, and and what I thought was really nicely done was that um, she, as she gets older, which she's, uh, she's all about the non-permanence, right? She, from the beginning, she never had the intention of staying, um, forever, which is why she only rented and she never bought furniture for herself. Right. Um, never bought decorations. Um, and the one time that she did buy decorations, she like, didn't even bother to like put it up correctly. So yeah, <laughs> like, just kind of roots the scotch tapes, the poster to the wall, you know, just real quick yeah, slap on yeah. the scotch tape. Yeah. It's not, you know, <laughs> um, so she has no intention of staying there, but she ends up just, you know, staying there for such a long time. Um, and what I found really interesting, she, she met and married her husband there as well. Um, and at the end she's like super like depressed, um, living Mm -hmm. there and they, they leave for California for, I believe LA. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but what I found interesting is at the end, so she, she kept insisting throughout that she did not, um, she didn't want to, it's, that's not a permanent thing. She's definitely not going to live there for the rest of her life. This is just something that's like temporary until she gets to a certain point in her life where specifically related to her job, I think, where she doesn't have to work at that job anymore and has a better position, mm-hmm. um, a better working position. But the last paragraph mentioned that they, that she and her husband, had bought a ha- um had an apartment that they kept up in New York throughout all of that and right, they only right. let it go um at the very end when they finally went back to visit after years of not going to visit New York when they went back to visit New York and it had like changed so that a lot of their friends had left as well and that's when they finally let the apartment go. But I was just like, if there was like no sense of permanence throughout, then like why why keep the apartment in New York for such a long time? Yeah, it's part of the, not ironies of Didion's writing maybe, but it is a good emblematic example, a strong one of her, yeah, kind of her whole attitude and towards a lot of these personal topics, which is a, a definite disappointment and sort of, I don't know, not aloofness to them but disconnection from certain things but also Mm -hmm. a sentimentality maybe or it's kind of like a sweetness for certain things she understands herself well and kind of 
has a connection to things that even make her sad <laughs> and doesn't yeah. want to let them go. So I, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I, I noticed that too, but I shrugged. Also, did you notice on the bio, maybe your print edition is different than mine, but on the bio on the back, it sounds like they lived in New York City. My, the, her bio on the back of my book says that her and her husband she live in New York City. She lives in New York City. Well, she's, she's dead now, but. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, but interesting. She must have headed back there at some point, right? Something drew her I back. I guess so, yeah. The other thing I will mention, in specific anyway, she talks about there's some anonymity to, um, again, New York City that kind of comforts her. Two quick things, a good example of how she has anecdotes that have abrupt moments in them. Um, I remember one day when someone who did have that West Village number, so she's staying at a friend's West Village apartment, came to pick me up for lunch there, and we both had hangovers, and I cut my finger opening him a beer and burst into tears, and we walked to a Spanish restaurant and drank Bloody Marys and gazpacho until we felt better. I was not then guilt-ridden about spending afternoons that way because I had all the afternoons in the world. So, of course, you know, her own acknowledgement about a certain youthful perspective. That's also, I will say, in terms of having clear ideas or a thesis, she does mention how New York City to her felt just it's an age thing, that there's a certain youthfulness to the city. And whether you attribute that to naivete or optimism or grand plans or early career aspirations or whatever. But it seems like that was a big part of what made moments like that okay but yeah i cut my finger and burst into tears and then we had some gazpacho like it she just has this she clings on to things and has these intense i don't know it's like she's intensely emotional doesn't really write that way though and definitely isn't forlorn or something but she you always have a sense with her you're never sure how she's gonna respond to something in, in these i don't know i also thought the um in the next paragraph talking about basically going to repetitive parties and not meeting meeting new faces but not ever a new type of person and she says um at the end of that paragraph this is a good summary of her too you'll have perceived by now that i was not one to profit by the experience of of others that it was a very long time indeed before i stopped believing in new faces and began to understand the lesson in that story which was that it is distinctly possible to stay too long at the fair and that, yeah, it's a great metaphor for, I think, her life there. What it, what drew her there, the the lights and the shine and the noise of it. And then also that just, you can't eat funnel cake forever. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, and I love that she ties it to her age as well. She's like, you see the, the, the draw as far as like her youth as well to it. She's just so young and and innocent and clear eyed. And she's like, got all these hopes. And then by the end, she's just so like done with it. It's Mm -hmm. (laughs) very much tied to the progression of her age and the, the shine of, of the things, the, the loss of her uh, naivete and stuff as she, as she ages, I thought she did a great job with that kind of progression and tying those two things together throughout as well. Yeah. Yeah, she does. And even if she never builds to something, her examples, her anecdotes, the way she wants to treat sort of evidence in nonfiction is always enticing and you know, it's not going to be wasteful. So it is, Mm -hmm. yeah, she, she does a lot with structure in that way and kind of, you just know when she enters into something new, it's going to grab your attention again, some kind of new angle, new perspective. Yeah. New example. I I guess I chose that one because I don't know if it was the location thing because some East coast, West coast writing I wanted to discuss, but it just, again, I just felt like the one to me that taught me the most about her directly kind of how she mm-hmm. lived her life 
the things that interested her and then didn't and I don't know yeah I was drawn to it for that reason would you say what are what was the most personal essay in the second half to you do you feel like there was one that helped you know her hmm I don't know I maybe the native daughter one was the one that helped me know her a little bit better just because of her descriptions of her childhood mm-hmm yeah it's not a ton in there but that sacramento that sacramento sadness <laughs> yeah she knows it well <laughs> <I like> it. <laughs> let's jump to your final pick then for the fourth essay in the back half yeah los angeles notebook um didion writes about living in los angeles especially diving into what it's like living there with the santa ana a type of wind that comes off the mountains and negatively affects the residents of the city and all the town cities in its wake this essay is divided into five parts uh, so part two is a radio show that debates the legitimacy of Helen Gurley Brown, who is the cosmopolitan editor-in-chief and author at the time. Uh, part three is an anecdote of Didion getting harassed at a grocery store by another woman for wearing a bikini to the store. How dare she? Mm-hmm. Um Part four is at a party where a woman married to a British actor is bored and reveals that her husband is gay. Um, or accuses him of being gay i don't i don't know if he actually was gay uh part five is at a piano bar where two patrons discuss what's wrong with santa barbara um and she throws around the word putrescence a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) for that conversation and uh, didion makes a a call to a friend in new york city um so yeah so uh, what drew me to this was um the Santa Ana facts, like I, I was, mm-hmm. I, I had heard of it, but I didn't know what it was, and and the fact that there's actual like studies being done for this across across the world, like internationally, because there, um, she mentioned that in, um, was it Sweden or, yeah, I think so, because they had that right? word phone that you pe- yeah, pulled, f- it was yeah, it was another country and, <laughs> or whatever it is, Fern. yeah, um, so there's like other places that uh sweden yeah or switzerland the swiss anyway Mm -hmm. and other places as well where (coughs) these things also happen they have different names for them but it's a psychological effect like it's it's a particular wind that comes off of the leeward side of a mountain and it's like warm at least it is in California. And what happens is, is like crime rates go up. People are just generally disgruntled. Um, and there's more um, car accidents. Like it's just, it's like, uh, it's like the phenomenon with like a full moon where you hear about like, oh, it's a full moon. And people just like the ER is like blowing up and stuff as far as like people going in there from a variety of reasons and stuff. So I just found that really fascinating. And that's what really drew me. Yeah. As I say in the first yeah. place. And I loved that there's actually some research done here because we don't see a whole lot of her in, in, in the other essays. Like there's not a whole lot of actual like researched information that she includes. No. And I wonder in terms of science, that's true. She's definitely thorough in a type of research, like knowing right. places and understanding a bit of history. I think that holds up in all of them, but there's not a lot of science in this. <laughs> this is the only yeah. place where she gets into, and I wonder at the time of when she was writing, if 
how much pop science was even available to her for quick, you know, for a quick find. I'm sure she could dig right. around the library and find some stuff, but anyway, yeah, it's um it, and it is kind of a refutation she builds up. It seems like she wants to dispel I don't know, a lot of her personal writing about California seems very contrarian to common perception, which is fine. It's I think a kind of an interesting task that she takes on dispelling a lot of myths, <laughs> California myths. And then this one, of course, is, you know, the, hey, Southern California has no weather. That's why people like it there. It's so normal. It's so samey. It's all the same. And this is her way of sort of refuting that, saying this is the this is the deep winter equivalent of the West Coast. This is the this is the equivalent of your northeastern brutal winter. That's why you guys are bitter and angry. This is why we get crazy and extreme and violent, <laughs> basically. Right. Which is funny. Yeah, I liked that as well, where she's the comparisons too. Because yeah, the, the ideas of California are that there's like a lack of of like you know genteel culture, which she battles when she talk uh, when she's talking about like what it's like to grow up in Sacramento. It is very much like she compares it to the Southeast when she talks about New York City and like who she relates to the most in New York City. It's actually Southerners rather right. than. Midwesterners or other Northerners, she actually is more like a Southerner in her take on New York City. So she actually is like maybe trying to show that California isn't as uh, barren culturally and um, and perhaps even weather-wise in this case as as people make it out to be. Yeah, and I think yeah, our understanding. It's sort of, I don't know, it's L.A.'s or even Southern California's kind of mythic quality. Um, it was certainly different than hers. That's true. The kind of Hollywood reputation, the entertainment capital of the world, basically, um, creating all TV, movies, whatever, pop culture-y stuff. I think that's a bit different now than it was when she was writing. So I think maybe some of her, I don't know, it's not negativity. It's a bit too simple. But certainly some of her perspectives about California are a little, yeah, I don't know, a little more sandy and jaded than ours. I respected that she included the calls from the the night owls. I, I'm not really sure what I want to say about it other than my only comment or the reason why I wanted to pull that section or references because it seems like she would be a person like that, just an insomniac, staying up too late, like listening to these kind of bantery pointless but mildly interesting perspectives where it's just kind of it's like nice chatter but also a little bit jaded and critical and the disc jockey's just kind of rolling calls along i don't you know i think it, it, yeah it just seemed like such a her thing to include because it's it also seems like a, such a her thing to do to be among people with those attitudes and just sort of it's off kilter a little bit you know it's the late night crowd it's not the normal working day crowd of kind of <laughs> yeah it, it just seems like the right crew for her to observe so I, I appreciated that it was odd though it's it's definitely kind of a not disjointed essay but it's an odd one because you have to really piece together her perspectives and try and figure out what about LA enticed her to to put this in I don't know that felt very much like her people to me yeah the so it was broken up into the five different parts there and parts two through five, so part one is where we, we talk about the phone and, and the Santa Ana and, like, how that affects the people of L.A. and people all around the world that have the same phenomena, the weather phenomena. But, like, the 
other parts are very much they're like little snippets, little little parts of conversations that she supposedly has witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, I don't know. They could have been completely made up by her for all we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, that's so completely different from from the initial part one tone, which was more of like, like you said, it's like the only time that you actually see a scientific data point in the essays that, that are included in here anyway. And um, I was just like, oh, okay, so what, why, so is it supposed to, the parts two through five, which are just tonally and stylistically so different from part, part one, um, why was that included in there? I'm, I'm still like kind of grappling with, with that a little bit. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still not a hundred percent sure, um, what to make of it. And I was wondering what, what you thought of that. Of just so of all of them together as a collective whole or just yeah. specifically. Oh yeah. I, yeah. So like why are parts two through five yeah. connected? How are they connected to part one? How are they connected to each other? I think, yeah, I think tying them under the, or tying them under, but placing them under the umbrella of this intensely California thing, the Santa Ana kind of increase in discomfort. Um, what's the, what are the words I'm looking for? Almost this, this anger, this blustery feeling that comes through. I think in all of those examples, she is kind of trying to draw that out, though it would be difficult. I'd have to, yeah, I'd probably have to sit down with for more time and try and parse together or all the connections between them or, or sort of analyze each one. But at least with like the night owls example, it, I think that one's interesting because it shows how some people are, you know, just of a modest temperament. And then the one lady says we should burn witches and has the kind of yeah. fieriness in her still and has a real furor about this topic about uh, what was it about something about women's decency or something? Yeah. Because they were discussing whether, um, what what was her name again? Um, I don't remember. I didn't. Helen Gurley Brown. Yeah, when you yeah. said she was an editor of something, I, I thought she was an author. I guess she could be both. But anyway, she she is an author, but she's mostly known for being the editor in chief of um, Cosmopolitan. Got it. And she like so the books that she wrote, I, I did a quick because I was like curious about her. Mm-hmm. She um, she did write a couple of books about like. Um, women like what what, how women should like act in the workplace or like um, how women can get ahead in life and and also seem to indicate that like women could you know have control of their own sexuality and sensuality and all these other things that were very uh taboo back then definitely yeah and and her (laughs) california too talk about kind of disparate perspectives from today contrast from 40 50 years later her california is kind of christian is sort of not conservative but is very it has these little punctuated pockets of yeah intense christianity that's that also goes back to the first half of the collection too but she i think in the sacramento essay in the one about the commune the joan not joan didion that's her the joan baez trying to like there's some kind of christian criticism of that seeming a little a little veiled but i think it was there anyway yeah so it's there's kind of this not fundamentalist might be a bit strong but there is this kind of christian pocket to the california she wants to talk about 
also the bikini could be filed under that too just sort of a yeah halting social progress being reluctant to embrace those things any final thoughts or kind of do you want to do you want to thread the needle on that on those and have some kind of view of why they're why they're there what they have connected yeah I, i just i thought maybe there were examples of um how the it can like most people seem like pretty even tempered but then like the something from the outside some other source will create this discontent within themselves and so you see examples of the discontent of some of these people i suppose is what i was Mm -hmm. looking at it like the santa anna people that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move. That's a good way to put it, and that's a good way to wrap up. Let's move to our ending segments. We've got a couple planned. We always do. We'll start with critical assistance. This is where we each pull some outside thinking and criticism of this work, be it um, we usually pull from essays and articles, but it could be from something else, maybe a video, maybe another podcast. Who knows? Amanda, why don't you – actually, you kind of just wrapped. I'll, I'll take this on first. Uh, I'll sure. go first. So I brought something – it is kind of, it's an odd workaround, but once I read it, this, I only really pulled the paragraph too, which is odd, <laughs> but once I read the paragraph, I figured I had to include it. It is from the Los Angeles Public Library website, and so I had to click, click deep into Google to get this one. It wow. is a book review by a librarian whose name is Shireen or Sharon Morris, and it's pretty recent too. I think the publication was 2020, but here's the odd part. It's not actually a book review of this collection. It's a book review of a collection of criticism about Joan Didion. But oh. in but in that she takes this one. That's why I was like, oh, I'm not going to I was skimming it and then I thought I'm not going to use this. But then this one paragraph caught my eye and I was like, ah, I'll just use that one paragraph because this is about Didion's writing. This is like she re- went back and reread some of Didion's stuff, and this is like a paragraph about her. So anyway, I'll read that, and then we can discuss. Didion has a cool, almost clinical writing style that serves her very well in skinning back what is of interest. Like a master duelist, calm and deceptive in appearance, but having focus and clarity, she always strikes the mark. She makes you think about what she is writing. She makes you think about other events and ideas. She slowly stirs it up, and you are definitely shaken and awakened to thoughts you never had. Joan Didion is a wise exemplar, a master of critical thinking, and how to write well to express thoughts and ideas. So pretty, right? Anything to add? <laughs> pretty well no, said. I, yeah. Very well said. Yes. <laughs> that's, why I was, that's why I thought I would include it. I was just so taken. I mean, the rest of the review was fine and pretty functional and stuff. But the two ideas in there that really grabbed me, the being a master duelist and then all the mm-hmm. accompanying adjectives, I thought was pretty well said. And it does seem like she views... I don't know if she's attacking her subjects, quote unquote, to push the metaphor too far or the simile too far, but it definitely, she sizes things up in that manner. And then when she goes to cut, she does it in a way that you might not notice. You know, it's like you're not, you don't know you're bleeding until 10 minutes later, kind of into feeling with her. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, the couple of sentences this person put in there were, I don't, yeah, it's funny because I usually pick something I want to discuss more, but I just thought, wow, what a, you know, concise interesting paragraph of itself like yeah i agree (laughs) yeah that's perfect (laughs) there was one other sentence too i briefly took from this review um and it says no one writes like her because no one thinks like her which is uh, yeah i mean i don't i don't engage with as much nonfiction as i do fiction so it's i feel like my own catalog of knowledge about this is is slim but of the essay writers i enjoy she her voice is definitely unique it's it's mm-hmm. very reserved. It feels like she 
she only tiptoes and then leaps suddenly it's like a, she has a strange cadence about her it is like a ballerina movement or something where it's it's like really minute at times and then all of a sudden it kind of opens up in big ways i think a lot of that we've already unpacked but her the word to word kind of writing is kind of measured has moments of intensity for sure but then it's really the structure and you have to kind of wait for some of the examples to click together or you have to wait until it's over to look back over the the bigger picture or try and connect things um mm-hmm. she doesn't always do that for for you yeah yeah no one thinks like her for sure um these thoughts that she has which we read in the in the personals and and the latter half of this um, essay collection you get some insights into she she more clearly reveals her thoughts on on certain ideas and and it's stuff that is is intensely thoughtful and and mm-hmm. unique so yeah i would agree with that as well yeah that's all i got it was from again the la it's from lapl.org it's just their i guess book website but yeah an interesting nice. review by sharon morris yeah and that, that was all i brought how about for you um i got mine from medium.com and mm-hmm. it was written by michael mk kim um and i i read his because he also read um and wrote a review on um native speaker which you and i have cool also done um a couple episodes that's great yeah okay fun and i and i liked his his um ex uh his description of um his review of of native speaker and then i read this one and i was like okay i like it too whoa first Um, time revisiting (laughs) somebody i think in this segment (laughs) Um, So this is from his writing. He says, This collection of short essays by Joan Didion was the perfect read on a quiet weekend afternoon in a living room soaked by the California sun. Her voice is iconic, dry, sober, melancholy, but with a hint of humor. Much like a little salt accentuates a sweet dessert, Didion's humor shines in her little descriptions and commentaries, even when the piece focuses on a grisly murder or morality. She maintains a distance from her subjects, sometimes individuals or a group of people or a city or her younger self, that allows her writing to contain a certain journalistic authority, but she gets close enough to comment upon the tiny cracks and flaws that give her subjects life. Um, so I like the dry, sober, melancholy, melancholy. Yes. And mm-hmm. the journalistic authority, you and I praised that a lot actually in the previous episode. Right. Um, yeah. Delphite, uh, delicate and, rather walk. She walks. Yeah. And, um, but she still comments upon, uh, the things that she sees, but in, in a, in a way that we don't see quite often anymore in, um, journalism nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. But I found it interesting that he he spotlights Didion's humor. Did you pick up on a lot of humor in her writing? I think, yeah, I think I called it like gentleness or tenderness earlier. Part of it, I think, could be interpreted Mm -hmm. as sort of humorous. I think that in maybe the, what's his name, John Wayne essay, there were some moments Mm -hmm. of kind of humor or silliness. I don't, yeah, I I didn't find myself laughing too often, but... It's more that she's clever. Yeah. And when you're clever, yeah, when you're smart and clever, the way you criticize something 
can seem i mean we if you're not smart or not clever when you have to criticize something it comes off as kind of like brutish and annoying but when you're smart and clever when you criticize something it comes off as sort of like fun or playful maybe even at times it's like ooh what you know what incision or what what concise i don't know concise uh insight or wit or something so yeah i don't think humor would be the word i would use either but it's it's just interesting spending time with a person who clearly is you know like witty or clever yeah oh yeah i like that um he goes on to say it's funny how sober didion's descriptions of people tripping acid or doing meth are i was like yeah (laughs) it was good yeah (laughs) not quite not quite written like somebody who has been there before because i actually don't know much about her personal life or if she was kind of put her toes into those movements but it Mm -hmm. did feel again there's a sympathy to it even when it's you know even when it's a bit ugly showing the truth it feels like she holds back that i I don't know we discussed that in part one that's the journalistic part where it just feels like she's just in control enough like to kind of make you i don't know make you believe her in a sense i guess yeah um and then he goes on to say i particularly love the first two essays of part two personals on keeping a notebook and on self-respect the former spoke to her identity as a writer and the latter to her identity overall i remember thinking that i'd like to write essays like those two pieces equal parts self-aware and self-effacing overall this collection was a quick intriguing read that made me eager to read other works that didion has written um, for sure, I would love to read some more Didion. I think mm-hmm. that yeah. her style just like really hit the spot for me, um, yeah. especially since I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction. This was just a really compelling read. Um, it, even like the the philosophical pieces, I was still like blown away by by her style and uh, her ability to set a tone and, and setting and stuff. So I was just like. Yeah, for sure. I would read more of her stuff. Um, and yeah, if, and we were, you had asked me about like, which piece seemed to reveal more about her as a, as a person or you mm-hmm. know what made me feel. And so I, I feel like I have um, some ideas about who she was as a person, but like also I still don't know who she is as a person. No, definitely. It's, I think in that sense, that makes her more enticing, right? Kind of slippery in a way. And as much as it kind of, as much inference as we had to do in the first half, even in the second half when she's more direct, I don't know. Yeah, there's kind of an elusive quality about it that that is intriguing. I, I certainly agree with you. Yeah, it's, of all the writers we've done so far... And I don't know, we've doubled up on some, so maybe 24 or 5 writers by now, maybe 22. Anyway, um, yeah, she's up there in terms of wanting to see more, wanting to read more. Yeah, it it will push me ahead for sure. Good. Any other thoughts on that piece? Some good quotes in that one too, like you said. Yeah, journalistic authority. close. Tiny cracks and flaws as well said too. I was just thinking about that. Final segment then, Amanda, the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame. Every time we finish a book, we induct some aspect of it into the Hall of Fame that we will, I don't know, should we put it here on this Vanderbilt campus? I guess we'll have to decide. (laughs) At some point, we'll construct it. (laughs) We'll build up our own library, like a presidential style, and build a lasting monument to literary dumb. 
Do you want to start us off? What are you going to induct from her work into the Hall of Fame? Um, I said uh, she would be inducted for most overtly objective reporting style, except, you know, when you actually read closer, it's not that objective. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Her journalism would be, I think that's a great, that's a great addition. It's the funny thing too, now that I think about it, we've done nonfiction, but have we really done journalism? The Janesville book, right? And ghetto side. I mean, I would call those journalism. Yeah, they they and they were both journalists as well, right? Yeah. Field notes from a catastrophe. Was she a journalist or just, she was right because we we talked about how her style was also very particular to like New York Times esque, like. Hmm. No, and I I think when I think back on those works now, they do just feel so much more objective. I, I mean, no work is perfectly objective or really objective at all. But yeah, this this feels so much more engrossed and kind of, it's like she's squirming around in it, you know, it's or something. There's a kind of restlessness about her, and that's part of the joy of it, too. It's it's hard to categorize, for sure, because it's, I don't think I would hand this to somebody and say, like, what interesting journalism. <laughs> it would be, yeah, anyway, it's, it's a good addition because it's hard to kind of wrestle with, yeah. I'm going to add in her, more of a tone piece, like, because I think she is kind of cynical, but I want to add it because not I'm not just going to say her cynicism. I'm just going to say her gentle and delicate cynicism. I, I think that the person, what they said about her being a duelist is just right. That I think I enjoyed spending time with her because she never, she's never weepy and nostalgic and sentimental. But she clearly has things she cares about and like wants to be really close to and, and careful with I don't but yeah. overall like her tone is is interesting it's hard to pin down I again want to say cynical but there's no way I would induct this and say well yeah because she's such a cynic right or you know such a pessimist to put it uh, a different word to it because those things aren't true it's so it's I like the complexity of it at the the more shades of whatever that is that I can't right that I can't describe I like that yeah the the gentle cynicism of Joan Didion. I I think that sounds great. Yeah, that's it's it's a fun. It's think back to Blood Bones and Butter, which I think is was way harsher and more abrasive, and some of the things she wanted to say and lessons she wanted to us to learn with her. This I think you honestly could put some of the ideas up against those perspectives on humanity or something on their adventures, their lives, but the the tone of it all is is way different, and just that I think is noteworthy. A more a more friendly companion to I don't know think about things with, and self-critical, self-effacing. I believe is what one of those critics said too, which is a good way to put it. Any final thoughts on Joan Didion's collection before we wrap up? Yeah, it was a good ride, a fun essay collection, and um, and pretty different too. I appreciated that. We haven't covered anything quite like this yet. Always new things to be discovered. Speaking of which, we have episodes coming up. If you've listened this far, thanks so much. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Find us on Instagram and Facebook and a late plug, but if you follow us on iTunes or Spotify, anywhere that has a rating system, we appreciate a five-star full rating and recommendation. Reviews always help. Tell friends and family, etc. Any any way you can put the news and the good word of literature out there, helps us a ton so we appreciate that uh, if you enjoyed the episode or are just curious about books we've got coming up we always pick a few ahead amanda will tell you about those take it away amanda uh next up we have the novel mash 
by Richard Hooker. Um, then we have The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. And then we have Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zavner. Yeah, the latter two were big recent publications, big hitters. So maybe mm-hmm. the internet will go wild for those. Who knows? <laughs> for those episodes. Yeah. Yeah. We shall see. Um, excellent. Okay. And you said no final thoughts on the Didion? Nope. I'm good. Cool. All righty. Well, thank you so much, listeners, as always, for sticking with us to the very end. And as always, until next time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>